Second lecture, part one of On the Future of Our Educational Institutions by Friedrich Nietzsche. Translated by J.M. Kennedy. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Aaron Rivera. Second lecture, part one. Delivered on the 6th of February, 1872. Ladies and gentlemen, those among you whom I now have the pleasure of addressing for the first time, and whose only knowledge of my first lecture has been derived from reports will, I hope, not mind being introduced here into the middle of a dialogue which I had begun to recount on the last occasion, and the last points of which I must now recall. The philosopher's young companion was just pleading openly and confidently with his distinguished tutor, and apologizing for having so far renounced his calling as a teacher in order to spend his days in comfortless solitude. No suspicion of superciliousness or arrogance had induced him to form this resolve. "'I have heard too much from your lips at various times,' the straightforward pupil said, "'and have been too long in your company to surrender myself blindly to our present systems of education and instruction. I am too painfully conscious of the disastrous errors and abuses to which you were wont to call my attention, and yet I know that I am far from possessing the requisite strength to meet with success.' however valiantly I might struggle to shatter the bulwarks of this would be culture. I was overcome by a general feeling of depression. My recourse to solitude was not arrogance or superciliousness. Whereupon, to account for his behavior, he described the general character of modern educational methods so vividly that the philosopher could not help interrupting him in a voice full of sympathy and crying words of comfort to him. "'Now silence for a minute, my poor friend,' he cried. I can more easily understand you now, and should not have lost my patience with you. You are altogether right, save in your despair. I shall now proceed to say a few words of comfort to you. How long do you suppose the state of education in the schools of our time, which seems to weigh so heavily upon you, will last? I shall not conceal my views on this point from you. Its time is over. Its days are counted. The first who will dare to be quite straightforward in this respect will hear his honesty re-echoed back to him by thousands of courageous souls. For, at bottom, there is a tacit understanding between the more nobly gifted and more warmly disposed men of the present day. Every one of them knows what he has had to suffer from the condition of culture in schools. Every one of them would fain protect his offspring from the need of enduring similar drawbacks, even though he himself was compelled to submit to them. If these feelings are never quite honestly expressed, however, it is owing to a sad want of spirit among modern pedagogues. These lack real initiative. There are too few practical men among them, that is to say, too few who happen to have good and new ideas, and who know that real genius and the real practical mind must necessarily come together in the same individuals, whilst the sober, practical men have no ideas, and therefore fall short in practice. Let anyone examine the pedagogic literature of the present. He who is not shocked at its utter poverty of spirit and its ridiculous awkward antics is beyond being spoiled. Here, our philosophy must not begin with wonder, but with dread. He who feels no dread at this point must be asked not to meddle with the pedagogic questions. The reverse, of course, has been the rule up to the present. Those who were terrified ran away, filled with embarrassment, as you did, my poor friend, while the sober and fearless ones spread their heavy hands over the most delicate technique that has ever existed in art, over the technique of education. This, however, will not be possible much longer. 
At some time or other, the upright men will appear who will not only have the good ideas I speak of, but who, in order to work at their realization, will dare to break with all that exists at present. He may, by means of a wonderful example, achieve what the broad hands, hitherto active, could not even imitate. Then people everywhere will begin to draw comparisons. Then men will at least be able to perceive a contrast, and will be in a position to reflect upon its causes, whereas, at present, so many still believe, in perfect good faith, that heavy hands are a necessary factor in pedagogic work. My dear master, said the younger man, I wish you could point to one single example which would assist me in seeing the soundness of the hopes which you so heartily raise in me. We are both acquainted with public schools. Do you think, for instance, that in respect of these institutions anything may be done by means of honesty and good and new ideas to abolish the tenacious and antiquated customs now extant? In this quarter, it seems to me, the battering rams of an attacking party will have to meet with no solid wall, but with the most fatal of stolid and slippery principles. The leader of the assault has no visible and tangible opponent to crush, but rather a creature in disguise that can transform itself into a hundred different shapes and, in each of these, slip out of his grip, only in order to reappear and to confound its enemy by cowardly surrenders and feigned retreats. It was precisely the public schools which drove me into despair and solitude, simply because I feel that if the struggle here leads to victory all other educational institutions must give in, but that, if the reformer be forced to abandon his cause here, he may as well give up all hope in regard to every other scholastic question. Therefore, dear master, enlighten me concerning the public schools. What can we hope for in the way of the abolition of reform? I also hold the question of public schools to be as important as you do, the philosopher replied. All other educational institutions must fix their aims in accordance with those of the public school system. Whatever errors of judgment it may suffer from, they suffer from also, and if it were ever purified and rejuvenated, they would be purified and rejuvenated too. The universities can no longer claim to this importance as centers of influence, seeing that, as they now stand, they are at least, in one important aspect, only an annex of the public school system, as I shall shortly point out to you. For the moment, let us consider, together, what to my mind constitutes the very hopeful struggle of the two possibilities. Either that the motley and evasive spirit of public schools which has hitherto been fostered will completely vanish, or that it will have to be completely purified and rejuvenated. And in order that I may not shock you with general propositions, let us first try to recall one of those public school experiences which we have all had, from which we have all suffered. Under severe examination, what, as a matter of fact, is the present system of teaching German in public schools? I shall first of all tell you what it should be. Everyone speaks and writes German as thoroughly bad as it is just possible to do so in an age of newspaper German. That is why the growing youth who happens to be both noble and gifted has to be taken by force and put under the glass shade of good taste and severe linguistic discipline. If this is not possible, I would prefer in future that Latin be spoken, for I am ashamed of a language so bungled and vitiated. What would be the duty of higher educational institution, in this respect, if not this, namely, with authority and dignified severity to put youths neglected, as far as their own language is concerned, on the right path and to cry to them, Take your language seriously! He who does not regard this matter as a sacred duty does not possess even the germ of high culture. 
From your attitude in this manner, from your treatment of your mother tongue, we can judge how highly or how lowly you esteem art, and to what extent you are related to it. If you notice no physical loathing in yourself when you meet with certain words and tricks of speech in our journalistic jargon, cease from striving after culture. For here, in your immediate vicinity, at every moment of your life, while you are either speaking or writing, you have a touchstone for testing how difficult, how stupendous the task of the cultured man is, and how very improbable it must be that many of you will ever attain to culture. In accordance with the spirit of this address, the teacher of German at public school would be forced to call his pupil's attention to thousands of details and with the absolute certainty of good taste to forbid their using such words and expressions. For instance, Beeinsprochen wer ein Namen, eine Sache Rechnung tragen, die Initiative ergreifen, selbstverständlich, etc. Cum dado in infitium. The same teacher would also have to take our classical authors and show line for line how carefully and with what precision every expression has to be chosen when a writer has the correct feeling in his heart and has before his eyes a perfect conception of all he is writing. He would necessarily urge his pupils, time and again, to express the same thought ever more happily, nor would he have to abate in rigor until the less gifted in his class had contracted an unholy fear of their language, and the others had developed great enthusiasm for it. Here, then, is a task for so-called formal education, bracketed, the education tending to develop the mental faculties as opposed to material education, which is intended to deal only with the acquisition of facts, e.g. history, mathematics, etc., and bracket, and one of the utmost value, but what do we find in the public school? That is to say, in the headquarters of formal education, he who understands how to apply what he has heard here will also know what to think of the modern public school as a so-called educational institution. He will discover, for instance, that the public school, according to its fundamental principles, does not educate for the purpose of culture, but for the purpose of scholarship, and, further, that of late it seems to have adopted a course which indicates rather that it has even discarded scholarship in favor of journalism as the object of its exertions. This can be clearly seen from the way in which German is taught. Instead of that purely practical method of instruction by which the teacher accustoms his pupils to severe self-discipline in their own language, we find everywhere the rudiments of a historico-scholastic method of teaching the mother tongue. That is to say, people deal with it as if it were a dead language, as if the present and future were under no obligation to it whatsoever. The historical method has become so universal in our time that even the living body of the language is sacrificed for the sake of an anatomical study. But this is precisely where culture begins, namely, in understanding how to treat the quick as something vital. And it is here, too, that the mission of the cultured teacher begins, in suppressing the urgent claims of historical interests, wherever it is above all necessary to do properly and not merely to know properly. Our mother tongue, however, is a domain in which the people must learn how to do properly, and to this practical end, alone, the teaching of German is essential in our scholastic establishments. The historical method may certainly be a considerably easier and more comfortable one for the teacher. It also seems to be compatible with a much lower grade of ability and in general, with a smaller display of energy and will on his part. But we shall find that this observation holds good in every department of pedagogic life. The similar and more comfortable methods always masquerades in the disguise of grand pretensions and stately titles. The really practical side, the doing, 
which should belong to culture and which, at bottom, is the more difficult side, meets only with disfavor and contempt. That is why the honest man must make himself and others quite clear concerning this quid pro quo. Now, apart from these learned incentives to study of the language, what is there besides which the German teacher is wont to offer? How does he reconcile the spirit of his school with the spirit of the few that Germany can claim who are really cultured, i.e., with the spirit of its classical poets and artists? This is a dark and thorny sphere, into which one cannot even bear a light without dread. But even here we shall conceal nothing from ourselves, for sooner or later the whole of it will have to be reformed. In the public school, the repulsive impress on our aesthetic journalism is stamped upon the uninformed minds of youths. Here, too, the teacher sows the seeds of that crude and willful misinterpretation of the classics, which later on disports itself as art criticism, and which is nothing but bumptious barbarity. Here the pupils learn to speak of our unique Schiller with the superciliousness of prigs. Here they are taught to smile at the noblest and most German of his works, at the Marquis of Posa, at Max and Thecla. At these smiles, German genius becomes incensed, and a worthier posterity will blush. The last department in which the German teacher in a public school is at all active, which is often regarded as his sphere of highest activity, and is here and there even considered the pinnacle of public school education, is the so-called German composition. Owing to the very fact that in this department it is almost always the most gifted pupils who display the greatest eagerness, it ought to have been made clear how dangerously stimulating. Precisely here, the task of the teacher must be. German composition makes an appeal to the individual, and the more strongly a pupil is conscious of his various qualities, the more personally he will do his German composition. This personal doing is urged on with yet another Philip in some public schools by the choice of the subject. The strongest proof of which is, in my opinion, that even in the lower classes the non-pedagogic subject is set, by means of which the pupil is led to give a description of his life and of his development. Now, one has only to read the titles of the compositions set in a large number of public schools to be convinced that probably the largest majority of pupils have to suffer their whole lives through no fault of their own, owing to this premature demand for personal work, for the unripe procreation of thoughts, and how often are not all a man's subsequent literary performances but a sad result of his pedagogic original sin against the intellect. Let us only think of what takes place at such an age in the production of such work. It is the first individual creation. The still undeveloped powers tend for the first time to crystallize. The staggering sensation produced by the demand for self-reliance imparts a seductive charm to these early performances, which is not only quite new, but which never returns. All the daring of nature is hauled out of its depth. All vanities, no longer constrained by mighty barriers, are allowed for the first time to assume a literary form. The young man, from that time forward, feels as if he had reached his consummation as being not only able, but actually invited to speak and to converse. The subject he selects obliges him either to express his judgment upon certain poetical works, to classical historical persons together in a description of character, to discuss serious ethical problems quite independently, or even to turn the searchlight inwards, to throw its rays upon his own development and to make a critical report of himself. In short, a whole world of reflection is spread out before the astonished young man, who, until then, had been almost unconscious and is delivered up to him to be judged. Now let us try to picture the teacher's usual attitude toward these first highly influential examples of original composition. 
What does he hold to be most reprehensible in this class of work? What does he call his people's attention to? To all excess in form or thought. That is to say, to all that which, at their age, is essentially characteristic and individual. Their really independent traits, which, in response to this very premature excitation, can manifest themselves only in awkwardness, crudeness, and grotesque features. In short, their individuality is reproved and rejected by the teacher in favor of an unoriginal, decent average. On the other hand, uniform mediocrity gets peevish praise, for, as a rule, it is just the class of work likely to bore the teacher thoroughly. There may still be men who recognize a most absurd and most dangerous element of the public school curriculum in the whole farce of this German composition. Originality is demanded here, but the only shape in which it can manifest itself is rejected, and the formal education that the system takes for granted is attained to only by a very limited number of men who complete it at a ripe age. Here everybody without exception is regarded as gifted for literature and considered as capable of holding opinions concerning the most important questions in people. Whereas, the one aim which proper education should most zealously strive to achieve would be the suppression of all ridiculous claims to independent judgment, and the inculcation upon young men of obedience to the scepter of genius. Here, a pompous form of diction is taught in an age when every spoken or written word is a piece of barbarism. Now let us consider, besides, the danger of arousing the self-complacency which is so easily awakened in youths. Let us think how their vanity must be flattered when they see their literary reflection for the first time in the mirror, who, having seen all these effects at one glance, could any longer doubt whether all the faults of our public, literary, and artistic life were not stamped upon every fresh generation by the system we are examining. Hasty and vain production, the disgraceful manufacture of books, complete want of style, the crude, characterless or sadly swaggering method of expression, the loss of every aesthetic canon, the voluptuousness of anarchy and chaos, in short, the literary peculiarities of both of our journalism and our scholarship. None but the very fewest are aware that among many thousands, perhaps only one is justified in describing himself as literary, and that all others who at their own risk try to be so deserve to be met with Homeric laughter by all competent men as a reward for every sentence they have ever printed. For it is truly a spectacle meet for the gods to see a literary Hephaestus limping forward who would pretend to help us to something, to educate men to earnest and inexorable habits and views. In this respect, should be the highest aim of all mental training, whereas the general laissez-aller of defined personality can be nothing else than the hallmark of barbarism. From what I have said, however, it must be clear that, at least in the teaching of German, no thought is given to culture. Something quite different is in view, namely, the production of the aforementioned free personality. And so long as German public schools prepare the road for outrageous and irresponsible scribbling, so long as they do not regard the immediate and practical discipline of speaking and writing as their most holy duty, so long as they treat the mother tongue as if it were only a necessary evil or a dead body, I shall not regard these institutions as belonging to real culture. End of Second Lecture, Part 1